Hello and welcome back to the pretty serious bike racing podcast for, well, for Monday, April 17th, coming to you here right after the Amstel Gold Race Sunday. I'm Dane Cash, and as ever, I'm joined by Cosmo Catalano, cycling analyst extraordinaire. I, I think I called you that last week. I think I'm going to settle on that as your intro. No, you, like called me, you called um, me intelligent last week. Well, I called you an intelligent bike racing analyst extraordinaire. So if you want that every week, I can, you know, I give you the full title, I guess. Sure. I mean, t- this week might actually be a good week for, for more Ivy League jokes, uh, but I can get to that when we talk about the women's race, maybe. That sounds great. Uh, also joining us, Kelly Fretz, editor-in-chief of the Escape Collective. Been a little bit since we had you on. You've been busy doing other podcasts, holding places, if you will. Yep. <laughs> Going to bike races as well. Glad to have you back here, Kaylee. Welcome. It's good to be back. Do you want some good news? I would love good news. Uh, good news is that this podcast, Pretty Serious Bike Racing Podcast, has been the most popular podcast on average of all of our podcasts for the last couple of weeks. Stoked. It's it's a very, very narrow, uh, very narrow battle between this and Geek Warning and placeholders spikes when we do things like go to Roubaix, for example, uh, they're all within, you know, like 10% of each other, but this one has been edging the other two out. So congratulations to, to all three of you. Wow. That's really great news. Um, and, uh, take that geeks. Uh, and <laughs> last, but definitely not least Ruth Winder, former U S national champion. Uh, I've said that you were the winner of Brabantse Pale before, and I was going to hype a different race victory every week for that you were on the show, Ruth, but this is also, we just had Brabantse Pale. I feel like it's a good week to mention that you're a Brabantse Pale winner. Welcome back to the Pretty Serious Bike Racing Podcast. Glad to be back. And Kaylee, don't give me another reason to be competitive over here. <laughs> <laughs> that was on purpose. <laughs> uh, Ruth, you are joining us despite being injured. And I just want to say that we're very grateful that you're toughing it out uh, just despite your recent injury. Yeah, uh, that, that we're very ha- we're happy to have you on. Oh, I'm very happy to be here. I've had absolutely nothing to do and I'm slightly losing my mind already. <laughs> and I guess you don't really need your arm to, you know, talk. You can, no. You can talk. You get the podcast. You get the mic holder right there doing as, all that I, for you. As an Italian-American, I have to disagree with that statement. <laughs> yep, I'm with Cosmo here. <laughs> <laughs> you were unable to clap the way that we normally clap to start the show. But I think other than that, we, we're going to be okay here. I believe we'll be just fine. Yeah. All right. So as I mentioned, we're just finishing uh, watching Amstel Gold Race today, men's and women's, where dominant riders slash teams did what they have been doing for the past few weeks. Not a whole lot of surprises uh, in terms of the results the way those races played out, though, made it a bit more surprising. There, there were there were some surprises with that, how things unfolded. Sure, if you look at the if you could just go look at the results, you're not going to be shocked. But uh, I think it's plenty to talk about with the way that things unfolded. We're going to start with the women's race, which finished early this morning. I should say before we talk about the women's race that there's already a great breakdown out there that you can listen to over on the Wheel Talk podcast. So go check that out. Get all the analysis from Abby Mickey and company over there. And we'll just supplement that with some of our own thoughts here about the women's race. Cosmo, 
15 seconds, set the scene before we start talking, just so that we are reminded of how things played out. I'm assuming everybody here watched every second of the race, but if you didn't, what what happened in, in 15 seconds, Cosmo? We got about 50K of coverage. Uh, there was already a two-rider break up the road uh, with a live rider and Trex Lucinda Brand. They got caught at 23K. There were a lot of attacks that went, uh, entertaining number, I thought. Um the most impressive one was Soraya Paladin, I think at 9K, finally got some separation. Grace Brown joined her. They were rejoined, recaptured right at the top of the Coburg. Um, there was a brief pause. Kopecky looked back at Vollering. Vollering nodded and attacked. Uh, Vollering won the race solo, and Kopecky took the sprint for second. So as you point out, there was some nice teamwork from Kopecky and Demi Vollering. And it was great to see those two riders gelling together, I mean, unless you're the entire rest of the peloton. It was nice <laughs> to see those two riders gelling together after their, I don't, I don't know what to call it, beef? Is beef too strong a word? Too drama. Not, not strong enough drama. a word? I don't know what to call what happened in Strata. I would say drama. Uh, drama. Drama. Okay. But clearly they were back together, working together to perfection at Amstel today in the Netherlands, kicking off this three-race set of hilly classics Canyon SRAM, you mentioned Soraya Paladin. They were active. They tried. Yeah, I think that Canyon did a really good job of being cohesive at the end. Um, they were doing some really good attacks and just like always going one after another. I feel like if you're really going to commit to that plan, I think they did a pretty solid job of doing that. Um, yeah, it didn't work out for them in the end, but it was it was cool to see them do it. You know, they still had a few numbers to play, which isn't been the case at the end for a couple of the teams, but they still had them. I wandered around at the start of Flanders and I was asking some of the directors, like, what do you do about SD works? And um, one of them, actually, she requested that I not use her name. And I'm not really entirely sure why. What she said wasn't really that that um, uh, controversial. <laughs> but she's basically saying that, that, like, two different things. One, at some point, all the rest of the teams have to essentially, like create one giant super team and that's almost impossible right but that is kind of what would need to happen uh and two is you need to uh use sd works's confidence against them or hubris against them is probably a better way of putting it uh which i thought was a really interesting idea and i i we haven't actually seen that successfully happen yet i don't think Cosmo, do you have a, do you have an example of that happening? I I would say that happened a bit at Provence Pale, where they got a they got a separation uh, with a rider who was it, it was Marlon Marlon Royster and uh, uh, many other strong riders, uh, including Sylvia Persico, who was pretty quick, I think, and known to be pretty quick. And they tried to get they did get Demi Vollering across to that group in hopes of kind of using their two riders to win the race, and they still couldn't do it, and they ended up losing the sprint. Um, and I think a lot of that was they were very confident they could get the group separated that they needed to, and it just didn't come together for them. So I, I don't know if that was intentional. Um, I think there was still some other factors, a little bit of luck that played into it. But at, to me, I could see shades of that that overconfidence, overconfidence being leveraged there. Yeah, I think you're right there. I mean, like overconfidence in terms of sticking a, like one or two riders in the break, but having it be the wrong riders. Right. Is, I guess that's the. Yeah. I mean, that's you want to you want to Vandenberg them as they used to do to quick step back when yeah. quick step was good. And you would try to get Stan Vandenberg in a break with someone fast and then out sprint Stan Vandenberg. <laughs> yeah. And I think that 
I think that in Brabant to feel it worked a little bit, but it was almost by coincidence, not because of what the other teams were doing. In this race, we still saw so much action from all the other teams. And at one point, I just feel like hitting my head against the wall. I'm like, what are you all doing? Like, SD Works are constantly sitting like top five. And for so long, they weren't doing doing much. Um, and it wasn't until probably like, I don't know, we saw Lorena Weavis on the front a little bit there towards the finish. And she started doing some cool attacks, which I thought was I thought it was great to see. Um, her doing her like full sprint up the cowberg that one time and then just die 10 seconds later. But then she didn't really die because she was still there. But earlier on, like there was still so many teams riding the front, chasing the break back. And I'm kind of like, SD Works are just sitting behind you. Like they didn't pull through almost at all um, to try and bring uh, Lucinda and Brown back and her breakaway companion who I'm just blanking at the moment um and you know I just thought I was like why why would you do this why wouldn't you just sit behind them and even the final attack from Demi at the very the the finish uh Ashley Mormon Pasio was behind her but nobody was watching her like the top three that we thought maybe could have tried to beat them were all in front of them and I'm just like why is nobody just like it's their job like Liana instead of attacking with 2k to go why was it not her job to like be on Demi's wheel like why was it not your job to just be there and try and beat her in a sprint because at this point like you've seen that she can attack you and drop you and just like why aren't we trying something different so i don't know that teams like are really pushing them to nobody's saying like you're here and we have to beat you and so we're going to push you to work it's like they're all just racing their own race and hoping that by the time they get to the finish line they can do something which hasn't been working out for them it's interesting ruth that you said how how Weebus made her big attack and then died uh because and then said she didn't die because it's true she definitely like she didn't attack she did her huge sprint right into the cowberg which was awesome to see and then, you know, the whole pack kind of sat back and eventually Kristen Faulkner makes her way from almost the back of the pack through the front of, to the front of the pack and attacks probably, in my opinion, maybe 30, 40 seconds after it would have been an awesome time to attack. Still a good time to attack because no one wants to chase. And Weebus sort of goes to the front and sort of pedals hard and it's about a seven second gap through the lap. And it's about a seven second gap at the top of the descent. And then there's one kind of chicane corner where Weebus closes the seven second gap almost instantly because Faulkner is not, has not shown a lot of like aptitude on the bike. And I think she's been pretty, she's pretty new to this, right? Like she, she started, I think as a rower, but I feel like she is very, just watching her position throughout the race. I feel like she needs somebody to be like, okay, we're going to ride through the pack together. Just hold my wheel. Like this is something that's going to save you tons of time and tons of effort. Definitely. I think she is super strong and has moved up fast through this sport. And you see that with a lot of riders, right, that start and they don't really they start later and they don't learn all the skills that maybe you learn when you're younger and you're not as strong because you're already already so physically developed as an older athlete. Um, but I remember after <laughs> Strada and someone was like, oh, Pitcock won that race because of his ability to ride his bike. And I just was like, Faulkner lost that race because of her inability to ride a bike. <laughs> and I don't mean to be awful. You just, like you said, she had a seven second gap at the top of a descent and it's a very short descent. By the end of it, it was completely closed. Um, and I think that she does lack a little bit when it comes to her um, bike handling abilities. You also most of the time see her cut up in some way, shape or form. And that also is just a get, good indicator of maybe a lack of bike handling ability. Um, it doesn't make you a bad bike racer. It just maybe means you have to be a little bit stronger in some ways. So, yeah. And probably it probably doesn't help confidence if you're constantly falling down, <laughs> falling down either. I mean, that's, you know, every time I've ever crashed, it took me a little while to, to sort of 
get back to it, right? And uh, if you're crashing frequently, you just never get back to it, I suppose. She, she needs to, like, go to the Tebow Pino school of, of <laughs> descending, which I don't, know if you, I don't know if you all recall, but, like, he was sort of notoriously bad going downhill for, for quite some time and then ended up, like, hiring a coach to help him figure out descending and, you know, by the last couple of years has been perfectly adequate, right? Like not getting dropped, not dropping, any, not dropping anybody else. Uh, that's, that's essentially what it feels like Faulkner needs. And if she, if she had that skill set, she'd be terrifying, right? Because she clearly has the Watts uh, over on wheel talk. Actually, I, I, I literally just posted that episode before we jumped on here and I was listening through and uh, Brody Chapman talked about a time when, and Brody's a, strong rider a time when Faulkner just literally rode her off her wheel I think it was at the Giro a year or two ago um yeah she's an incredibly strong rider and if she could figure out the other the other bits I think she'd be she'd be a real threat potentially even on the level of what we're seeing from some of the SD works riders and that's like for me that's really great news because it's a skill that you can train you know almost independently of your other your other workload physically like it's not like you can't do basic bike handling work. And it, it, for me, like I definitely wasn't good at cross country skiing, uh, to the level that Faulkner was probably good at rowing. Um, and certainly not good at biking, but it, for me was very counterintuitive to kind of get my head around, you know, that little bit of counter steer before you have to do the setup for a corner on a bike. Like you don't really have to do that on skis. And so I think it's, it's something where there's just a, a tremendous amount of talent and, it's a good skill to train, and I'm just hoping she's getting that that kind of feedback. I, she did kind of sit on the front after she was caught too, which to me is more of like, was there someone on the radio saying, "Hey, you're you're caught. You can you can go draft a little bit and save some energy and try and attack again." And I'm, I I don't know. I I have no idea. I have no insight. But to me, I was just kind of like, "What is going on here?" Kind of like Evelyn Stevens vibes, and and we love Evelyn. Like she was a, she's an exceptional bike racer as well, but uh, not notorious for being well positioned <laughs> less crashing i would say and and more just sort of like you know being in 30th when she needed to be in fifth kind of kind of thing and 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 same thing which was like you know once she started to figure that that out near the end of her career she became a lot more potent from a from a well a victory perspective basically yeah i think if you're jeko alula you're, you're looking at this sort of thing and thinking all in all it's it's like a, it's a good thing in, in a way, because it is something that you can improve. That's what you kind of mentioned that it's, it's not something where you look at it and you say, well, this is just how it is. We're, we're never going to be able to improve. This is the sort of thing that if you work on it, hopefully with more time, more experience, I mean, she has not been racing relatively that long and, and hopefully she'll improve. And then, and, and with the wattage that she has, yeah, that could make a, a really a big difference. Uh, anybody else, other teams impress us at this race? It was cool to see Grace Brown kind of back at the front a little bit more. I feel like I'm a Grace Brown fan, fan for sure. Uh, and having her up there, she didn't, you know, she wasn't flying, flying, but she hasn't really had the spring that I think I would have liked to see from her. Rather, that was just a bit of bad luck or lack of legs here and there. But uh, yeah, she kind of made a presence, which was fun. Good to see Ashley Moulman-Pasio up there. Um, I've seen, AG, is it AG Insurance or AJ Insurance? I, I'm always worried about getting the pronunciation's wrong but uh, it they've i've seen them kind of at times on the front in races and you're like oh what are they going to do and then you never see them again so I, I thought it was really cool she was up in the mix and i think if she'd wanted to make volering not win she could have i don't think she could have won herself but she might have been able to just sort of take one for the team and pull that group back 
Yeah, I think with the the eighth for her eighth place finish has to be somewhat confidence building or or, or um, yeah, a starting place with uh, Flesh and and Liege coming up because she has the the climber skill set to do really well in in races where that they're just sort of pure climbing talent required. So it, it's a nice kind of bounce back for her after. I don't want to say quiet. It's like she hasn't been around, but she hasn't had too many big results since the the February stage win in uh, in uh, Seth Monteciclista. So with the way things played out today, I think SD Works sort of it was a big bounce back for them as a team after Roubaix, and I just another reminder that getting into the early breakaway and, and holding on all the way and winning semi miraculously and stunning the world isn't going to happen that often. Uh, so sh- shout out to Allison Jackson for doing that at Roubaix, but I don't think getting into the early break is a sustainable long-term strategy for beating SD Works. What is? Uh, I mean, I, I don't. You, you asked around at uh, at the races, Kaylee, and it seems like there wasn't a great, obvious go-to answer. I don't. I don't really know that we have one. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I, I chatted with a couple d- different directors about this, and 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 all said some version of like multiple teams essentially working together. Uh, and the confidence thing actually came up a couple different times. And I, th- I think that the confidence thing is maybe uh, the, the two are probably related in that, like, if you go to Roubaix and you kind of make, you attempt that tactic a little bit more often, essentially by putting really strong riders in, in breakaways, uh, preferably with an SD Works, without one of the SD Works that are like big guns, right? The, the problem is how do you do that? Like, you, you, how do you get in a breakaway without, sort of one of their three world beaters it's it's that's easier said than done uh, and then once you do you just have to force them to chase right and you essentially every single other team has to just be like we're not doing anything have fun you're sitting in the front i think that's that's the only way and, and so many things have to line up for that to actually happen that that's why we that's why we see them win all the time right it's easier said than done all these things yeah, I think it would be really fun, though, to see someone just really sitting on Demi's wheel or Kopecky's wheel. I think that we haven't really seen someone fully mark them 100%. Like, if you think about Annemiek van Vluten, um last year, and when we really saw Kopecky kind of have a breakthrough, there were so many times it was so clear. It was Kopecky's job just to sit on van Vluten's wheel, and that was all she had to do that day. And sometimes she did it, and sometimes she didn't. But, like, why have I don't feel like we've really seen someone in being told do not do anything except for move when Dami moves. And like, that's all you have to do today. And I'm like, why could we have seen that today? I think maybe, you know, like why did Leon attack with two, two gay to go? Like why, for what? I, I completely agree. And I think there may be a psychological aspect too. Um, Kopecky is, she seems pretty irascible on a bike, a little feisty, which is fine. Lots of riders are, but you saw today where she didn't get her, she didn't get her jacket at the, at a, at a feed station and was kind of like visibly angry on the front, you know, sort of yelling at the soigneur. And then she went back to the car and got her jacket, put it on and was taking sticky bottles and yelling at the moto. Like she's, I feel like it would meaningfully upset her to have someone following her around through the entire race, marking her wheel. Um, Sounds great. I mean, it, it, these are the things that, you know, it's a, it's a long sport cycling and these little things in the back of your head, at least maybe again, for me, not being very good, kind of eat at you. So I don't know. I would love to see it though. I would say that irascible is a Dartmouth English lit major kind of word. <laughs> so is there a Ivy league point to be made here about the women's race? Temperamental, feisty, easily agitated. <laughs> 
No, I'm not saying Cranky. you shouldn't use that word. I'm just trying to set you up to talk about whatever you you had mentioned earlier. I, well, I, yeah. I th- it was it was I, off. I I think I was going to try and make a Faulkner Harvard connection thing. I don't know. There was I was I was going to say she skied like a rower, and I was I don't know. I don't. I I, I, I was just going to bring it up, and then I'm like I, I lost momentum. Yeah. Okay. 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 So that's the Amstel Gold Women's Race. The men's race saw a different kind of dominance. Uh, again, a, a wholly expectable dominance, and yet very different in the way that it played out. Uh, and it was more of a singular rider dominating as opposed to a team that has been dominant. Cosmo, set the scene for us, uh, if you will, sir. I think we got coverage starting at 90K, and there was already a large break, 20 seconds clear, with Tade Pogacar in it and a lot of other strong riders. Uh, but they rode pretty hard and progressively fewer strong riders in it until about... Uh, I think around 40k to go, uh, I think on the Bemlerberg, Pogacar put in an attack and reduced the group to three with two kind of danglers that never got in touch. Then on the very next climb, not much later, uh, 33k to go, is that the 33k to go, uh, he attacked again and dropped Ben Healy from EF and eventually Tom Pidcock from Ineos and rode away solo the rest of the way, pretty much unchallenged, maybe aided by some vehicles, as we'll talk about. Um... Healy dropped Pidcock, closing in on the line for second, and the rest of the race never really seemed to factor. Yumbo really screwed this one up. Why do you say that, Kaylee? Uh, well, they lost the bike race, Dane, uh, and that's the number one indicator. <laughs> well, that's a good starting uh, point for this screwed, conversation. Screwed something up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but the, 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 the really the big thing was that they weren't even in a position to, to ever win the bike race, really. I, I mean, by the time... Uh, yeah, I mean that that large group went went free, and Tash Benut and and sort of their other their other big names had all missed that move, and they're chasing, 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 and those two groups stayed relatively relatively close together for quite some time as a result. But when you've got that whole front group, what kind of confused me was that front group was all working with Pogacar, which is a very interesting thing for them to be doing. Uh, but they were all like everyone was rotating, right? You had a group of what it was ten or twelve or whatever it was up there, maybe even bigger. And everybody was rotating quite nicely. And so then behind, you've got Trek and Yumbo also, you know, working their butts off trying to close this thing down. But it just sort of stayed at like 30 seconds for, what, 30, 40K, something yeah. like that. Uh, and, you know, Tej Benut eventually tried to kind of get himself across just in a, in a smaller group. That didn't work either. Yeah, I mean, for a team that, that earlier in this season felt absolutely unbeatable, they had a pretty bad... Flanders and Roubaix, and not a great Amstel today. I would say that they, yeah, they messed up the tactics. They weren't in the right place at the right time. They didn't move with the right move. They didn't follow Pogaccia around. Like, again, why would you not just stick st- stick somebody on him? I don't really get that. Uh, yeah, they, they, they lost this thing as much as anybody else won it today because I think realistically they're probably the only team with the firepower uh, – to maybe do something against the Pogacar train. That's the sense that I get anyway. They did initially, right at the very first minutes of coverage, have Tosh Vandersand in that Pogacar split, and he was almost immediately dropped. And I kind of, this is where, Dan, you mentioned this was foreseeable, but like, I don't think I foresaw this happening so early in the race. Um, and I don't true. think the yeah, organizers did either. either, or they would have covered it. <laughs> like, but at yeah, some point, that, someone on Yumbo true. said, "Oh, it's fine. We got Tosh in that break." Not realizing that there was, you know, extremely strong people all ready to work in there. For me, what was mind-boggling was that Trek and Bahrain and Yumbo 
all seemed unable to work together. Like one team would pull and the other teams would sit on. And it just like it was such a small gap that I cannot believe, even with Pogacar being Pogacar, that, you know, nine people riding as hard as they can in a pace line couldn't have brought that back. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but I just I feel like they could have coordinated better in the chase. No, I agree. It it, it certainly seemed like the gap was small enough that if enough of these riders had worked together. And, and I think you, you kind of described it really well. There were moments where, okay, Trek's at the front. Okay, Bahrain's at the front. It didn't really seem like they were actually co- uh, collaborating. They weren't really cooperating very well. And we've talked about this before with, with teams where, okay, even if Yumbo did have Vandersand up there for a bit, he's not going to win the race. Like that, that's not, that doesn't mean you can not chase if, if he's up there. Because Tadej Pogacar is going to drop him. And then even if Tadej Pogacar crashes, like four other people in that group are going to win ahead of Tasha Anderson. So that's not a good reason not to go all in on the chase. And then even when you know, it became clear they needed to chase, like they just couldn't get it together. I have a, I have a Ruth question, which is uh, we, we always hear about like at Flanders how difficult it is, or Roubaix in particular, how, how difficult it is to, to put a chase together. Uh, it looks like that in the Ardennes as well, but it, we don't hear about it as much. Is that a factor here? Was that part of the reason why the Peloton behind kind of couldn't get their, their themselves together? Yeah, it could be. I think the roads are pretty twisty and a bit more narrow. It's harder to move up if the bunch is still kind of big. Um, there was one point where I saw like a couple of them together, but at that point, I think too, the gap had gone from like 25 seconds out to 40 seconds and maybe they were a bit rushing again. Um, but to me, yeah, it would be like as soon as you know, who was up there, why you're not moving your butt a lot faster than everybody seemed to be moving their butt. <laughs> um, so, and then there was that big crash that really just then everything was off after that. I felt like as soon as that crash happened, no one no one was coming back after that. Yeah, the crash did take out like a bunch of riders. and they, I mean, it's it's Amstel Gold Race. Like, there are crashes in this race. It's, it's, a, it's a race that is known for its road furniture, known for the crashes that the road furniture causes, and it took some... Some riders out of the race took, and even if you know riders weren't necessarily injured or anything in their crashes, they were just kind of out of it after after going down. And like Nielsen Palace, an example of that. Although EF was able to bounce back, uh, and we'll get to that in a little bit. I, I do want to just talk about Pogacar. We don't. I mean, we, there's only so many things you can say about him week after week after week when he wins all these races. Um, I, I think to me the the thing that really strikes me after Flanders and Amstel is if you look at the climbs that he's going away on, they're like they're less than a kilometer long or they're one, they're maybe two kilometers long at most. They are not climbs that a Tour de France contender is generally able to put distance on others on. Uh, yes, they are very steep at Amstel, but this is the sort of race where it's, it's certainly not unheard of that a Tour de France winner is going to be a contender, but it's, you just don't see it very often. And I am curious if he has maybe made a change to his approach I'm honestly kind of optimistic or hopeful. I'm hopeful that this is the case because otherwise, if he just dominates at Amstel and the Tour de France, I'm I'm a little worried that that it's going to get kind of stale, and I don't want that to happen. I, while I appreciate your optimism, Dane, I think I think it's it, uh, <laughs> deeply misplaced. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think he's just that much stronger than everybody. That's I, I think what it seems like. I think yeah. it basically comes down to like, okay, like let, let's just sort of you know run the run the hypothetical here, right? So. Um, if his threshold is is six point six watts per kilo, and and Pidcox is six point three, it doesn't really matter whether you trained for those efforts or not. He's just riding 
easier essentially the entire day and therefore can hit these things with a sort of fully charged tank and and yeah i think he's just that much better honestly uh it, 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 i wouldn't surprise me if he's you know doing a little bit sort of a slightly different training coming into the classics this year because he's he had put a heavy focus on on these one days this year uh but he's got plenty of time to then turn that around and get into the hour-long efforts uh for the tour de france i don't i i i think your your optimism is yeah slightly misplaced perhaps i think it probably is i, I guess to to kind of clarify my hope is that in these races gen, i mean generally speaking in these races the bottom half of that watts per kilo equation matters a lot less than going out the Optuez or going up Vontour or, or whatever. Uh, the, I mean, the climbs are just not that long, and gravity is not pulling you down as much, and then actually you get to go on the other side, and it's, it's nice to be a little bit heavier on the other side. So the bottom half of that equation is a little bit less relevant here, and he's still crushing everybody. That's kind of why I'm hoping that when we do get to um, July, maybe things are different. Again, I'm not, I, it's, it's fun to watch. I just don't want things to get stale. I was, I was okay. without specifically commenting on your optimism, I would say that... Uh, you know, there's something positive here in that the Tour de France winner who was favored last year, who had won the previous two, who lost, is not like structuring his entire life around winning the Tour again, but is like, no, I still want to win these spring races. And he's winning them, and it he's definitely dominating them to the point that maybe we could get sick of it. But it's also cool to see somebody who lost the Tour de France be like, it is more important to smash people in April right now than it is to, to win in, again in July. Well, we know there's a bit of a kind of follow the leader effect, right? Which is that if somebody is winning in a particular way, lots of other people then try to do the same thing. We see this in the tech side of things all the time. Uh, but it, it, what, what kind of concerns me with that is then if Pogaccia goes and loses the tour again, despite quite obviously being the best bike racer in the world, then it sort of proves the Vingago model the Chris Froome model, the Bradley Wiggins model, the you know the, the model that has worked over the years, it proves that model, and and kind of shows that the the Pogaccia version is overly optimistic, perhaps. Unless you really want to win <laughs> uh, spring races, which would then which would then that would kind of suck, right? Like, because then, then we're back to then we're back to like the the, the Froome years where you know Grand Tour riders are just really not particularly exciting. They don't race Grand Tours exciting. They don't race one days exciting. They're just not particularly exciting bike racers. It's just like a big, you know, workout competition, uh, Watts competition, staring at your stem. And I don't think anyone really wants that. And so I think that that for me is the kind of like scary thing about Pogaccio doing this. And then if it doesn't work, then, you know, then the whole peloton plays a bit of follow the leader and we end up with all our GC riders back to being not particularly exciting again. What's the Trentine thing? I feel like I've almost been talking too much about my own race experience today. But so the situation was Pagacha rode a bunch of the distance with a flat tire. Uh, there was a moment where they were able to get the team car through to get him a new bike. He pulls over, they do a bike swap, and Trentine, who had gone from marking attacks, suddenly jumps to the front and rides as hard as he can with the intention of trying to bring Pagacha into the race. I have definitely done this in like a one, two, three race where I am a cat three who is basically complete baggage, who has an opportunity to help a stronger rider. And I'm like, yes, it's my moment to be useful and like ride up to go tow them back into the race. And once they're back up to speed, they just ride past me and that's it. <laughs> and there's I am, I am able to offer no help whatsoever, which is exactly what happened to Trenton. Uh, he didn't, he didn't quite connect to Pogacar and honestly, Pogacar didn't need the help in the end. So let's talk about the assistance that he received 
from the vehicle in front of him, which, mm. I mean, it probably is not going to change the outcome of the race, but it was a lot. He got he got a lot of draft from a, a motorized vehicle. Uh, yeah, I just think it's really frustrating. I think that, you know, there are so many rules set by everybody involved and people get fines for tiny things all the time in bike races, but then we have things kind of out of riders control as well with this just cause in front of you. And generally speaking, I think most riders are of the opinion that they should just they're not generally looking for it, but we'll take it if it's there because everyone's like, at some point, everybody gets some sort of aid from a vehicle in front of them. But it's just like, yeah, it's frustrating for the people behind. It's frustrating for the person behind the car because they have this bit of conflicting thoughts. Like, oh, like you, you don't want to be slowing down and it's like this distraction from what's in front of you. Um, I just, yeah, I think that we could figure this out better than we're figuring it out currently. And I don't know what needs to change, but it seems to be happening a lot. Just vehicles in general in front of riders of all kinds of different between groups the leader yeah they they need to they need to punish this stuff like they punish riders for doing little tiny things right like because uh, because honestly because that would help with the sort of education side so uh, the course director who's driving that bmw that was sort of sitting in front of pagacha for quite some time uh, was leo van vliet i believe uh, and he was approached after the race uh, ad.nl uh, ran a quick interview with him and he basically said i've ridden before and i can't imagine there'd be any benefit from that uh, the problem is we have this man named was it bert blocken i think is his name who, who mm-hmm. did all the the um the analysis of this and 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 looking at the cfd and wind tunnel testing and all the rest and, and we do know that it, it, it has an enormous impact on on a rider even what 50 meters or so behind a car and they're often significantly closer than that and today they were way closer than that and then you've got this guy who's driving a a vehicle in a one of the biggest bike races in the world who just doesn't even know that this exists and doesn't agree with it right and so from some from that perspective you just need an education campaign where everybody who's driving needs to know that they cannot do that and it's not a debate and they don't get to tell us oh i rode bikes and this 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 it's not a big deal. No, it is a big deal. And the UCI kind of needs to start to start clamping down on 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 drivers that do it cuz sometimes it's an accident, right? But the thing about accidents is you can often avoid them <laughs> if you if you have a little bit of foresight uh, and if you're going to get whacked with like a, you know, a 1500 Swiss franc fine, right? Like this that's the sort of thing that I think could potentially get these drivers to to stop. Uh sitting in front of riders and the motos are are just as bad i mean as soon as the bmw got out of the way today then we had a a race photographer sit you know 15 yards in front of pogaccio again now it's impossible to sort of like truly draw a line between these two things but as all this was happening the gap which had been actually shrinking according to the possibly questionable uh gap that's been sitting on the top of the television (laughs) and actually been shrinking down to 19 seconds i think between ben healy and pogaccio and by the end of all this stuff happening all this car drafting it was back up to 35 almost 40 seconds right so it does i think who knows if that's the actual impact you know cosmo we were saying earlier that those numbers are not particularly accurate often at the end of this race but i think it's unquestionable it has some impact if it has some impact then we should it's not a difficult thing to stop is the thing like you just you just don't drive 20 meters in front of a whoever's winning the bike race just so you can get your like amstel logo in the in the tv shots is basically what they're trying to do when i first started watching cycling i thought it was really cool that there were all these cars and motos that supported the race and 
when it worked out, when certain situations where the cars were doing what they were supposed to do and you were coming back from a flat tire or getting some food, you could grab a draft off a car for three seconds and get back to the to the group. I thought that was, you know, they're part of the course. They're like an official in basketball or, you know, and, and occasionally you can use them as a screen. It happens. You're not, they're not supposed to actively screen for you. And that, like, I feel like the UCI kind is kind of absent here in setting up rules and regulations and penalty structure for, like, what what these vehicles can do and what 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 riders can do are allowed to do you know because the penalty always seems to fall on the rider it's like oh so and so is fine 50, 50 swiss francs and relegated for drafting too much and it's like well what about the guy driving the car all right so we should talk a little bit about the podium the rest of the podium because i think there's there's some storylines uh both in second and third uh, second place went to ben healy which is very exciting for well for ben healy himself the the youngster the Irish racer, uh, and also for his team, which, man, EF has had a really, really nice last few weeks of racing. They've they've managed to consistently put riders near the top uh, in the classics to consistently be contenders in these races, and that's that's not something that we've seen that much from them uh, over the past couple of seasons where they're just constantly and consistently up there. They've had some great performances here and there, but the consistency with with uh, Healy and, and Nielsen Palace, that's sort of the two two big riders that have been performing for them. Uh, they've got to be really, really happy about that. Palace today, I mentioned earlier, was caught up in a crash. I think he was plan A, and you know Healy managed to go up and and I, the way he put it, I think he said, yeah, it's not too bad to finish second to the best bike racer in the world, was basically what he <laughs> said. And I, I kind of agree. Uh, if you're if you're finishing second to Tadej Pogacar, you're doing something right, because that means you're better than most people. Uh, and Ben Healy, I, I was pretty impressed to see him uh, leaving Pitcock behind. Pitcock, is, the form's a little bit hard to judge with the way that his spring was kind of derailed by that concussion that he suffered at uh, Torino Adriatico. But there's really... I think there's very little negative that you can say about the way that Ben Healy raced today. And so this is his second straight runner-up ride. He was second at Brabantse Pale as well. So for that team, for EF to, EF, for EF to go into flesh with both Healy and Palace, for EF to go into LBL with you know Healy and Palace, that's uh, pretty promising for them. And then they got Esteban Chavez coming in as well uh, off of uh, his frustrating for him because it didn't lead to many big results, but strong rides at both Catalonia and the Basque Country. He was very active in both of those races. Uh, I think that's a team that they, they need they need some results, and they've they've managed to kind of be up there or thereabouts, as the Brits like to say. Would you like some Ben Healy facts? Let's get some Ben Healy facts. I don't actually have that many. <laughs> but I have a couple Ben Healy facts because I'm, I'm actually talking with him tomorrow, I think possibly Tuesday, just because I... You know, he's he was sort of the, the story of the last week, and it felt worthwhile to give him a ring and and see what he's up to. Uh, he's a young rider; he's twenty two years old, uh, according to Ronan, who is also Irish and has has known Ben for a very long time, and actually was, uh, according to him, a, a, an advocate of keeping Ben Healy or getting Ben Healy on a, a sort of the national team for for a couple of years there. Um, but he's a Tour de Lavenir stage winner. Uh, apparently, Ronan says, the youngest ever Tour de Lavenir stage winner. I have not fact-checked that. No idea if that's true. Ronan says it's true. Uh, other facts, uh, he works with uh, Dan Bigham a fair amount on sort of like aerodynamic stuff. He's like an aero guy, uh, you know, like a not quite Taco Vanderhorn handlebars, but I think you could actually see in the chase that went on for sort of the last half hour of, of the race on Sunday that 
he's got his sort of road position quite dialed. He's got the, you know, sort of as close to invisible error bars, puppy paws as you can possibly get. He's apparently quite, um, yeah, he's quite into that sort of thing, which when you're then in a one-on-one chase with the best rider in the world, uh, every single watt counts. And so uh, I wasn't too surprised once I learned that to see him basically edge out somebody like Tom, Tom Pickock, who, uh, by the way, Healy was, I think, the only domestique with Trinity the year that Pidcock won the Baby Giro. And so those two have actually known each other for quite some time. Uh, and, and yeah, Healy essentially helped Pidcock win that race back in the day. So there's your Ben Healy facts for this episode. That was a cool aspect of Pidcock's post-race um, chat. He was interviewed and, and mentioned, you know, basically... He kind of he kind of stopped himself. He was like, "I was surprised." You know what? Actually, I wasn't surprised to see Ben Healy because he helped me win the Baby Giro, and he's awesome. I've raced with him. Blah blah blah. And, uh, he, they've clearly raced together long enough that that Pitcock knew that this that this rider was was something to to watch, uh, someone to watch. And yeah, uh, kudos to Ronan because Ronan, I I do remember Ronan pointing out Ben Healy early on in, in his uh, in his career, rising star that he was, kind of coming up and winning things like the stage of the Tour de Lavenir, for instance. Uh, but we should also talk about Pitcock really quickly before we kind of close things out here. I think Pitcock probably, yes, he's finished second at this race before in the past. So yes, it's a step down for, for him for, from his best ever, but I would think he's pretty happy with the way things turned out because of the fact that after he won Strada and after he was just on flying form for that, this whole spring has kind of been since then a bit of a wash because yeah, I, I think that injury really derailed him. That the concussion that he sustained uh, at, at Torino really derailed him, and for him to come back and finish third at this race, I think is a really uh, good sign for him moving forward. He said that you know it was ended up being the, the last twenty k was kind of hard for him. It, it was just a, bit, uh, I think it was a bit long in the end. But by Wednesday for Flesh, and and maybe by by Liege on Sunday, he'll maybe be back near his best. I don't know if that is going to matter. I don't know if anybody can beat Tadej Pogacar right now. But Tom Pitcock, I think, one of the few riders out there who, at his best, is at least, you know, in with a shot. One of the few people who might be able to to manage. So a, a solid, you know, if not probably what he was looking for in terms of winning, uh, a solid result, I think, for, for Pitcock to build on with with the other two Arden races. Well, the only two Arden races. I, I mentioned this last week, and I'll say it again for those who were not listening, that this race doesn't actually go through the Arden Forest. Okay. Cosmo's got opinions. So it used to, uh, or at least it used to go into Belgium until I think 2001 or 2002, there was a loop of this race that went into Belgium south of the Netherlands, south of Limburg. Uh, I will leave it to people who live in that part of the world to say whether or not that is technically the Ardennes, but looking at a map of Europe, as an American, it sure seems awfully close to it. So I think we should be okay calling it an Ardennes classic. I feel like I've actually, because this is the sort of person I am, I feel like I've actually looked at a map <laughs> of like the Ardennes forest and tried to figure out whether it actually went into the, you know, the official Ardennes region at that time. Mm-hmm. So, but it doesn't anymore, but all right, fine. Yeah. Oh, uh, so the second Ardennes week race. I think it's part of the Ardennes because we stay in the same hotel. For the Flandern Classics, we go to a different hotel. That's a big difference. And then difference. for that hotel, we stay at the same hotel. It's very, very different. You have two hotels you spend the spring in. One is in Bruges and one is in Maastricht. I like this. Ardennes, there you go. Flanders Classics. Uh, that actually, I think, is notable. Uh, that that settles it for me. I will, I will now say that Flesh is the second 
race of the Ardennes week here coming up. So that's what we are looking forward to. Ardennes is a vibe, not a place. Oh, like, yeah. Like that's right, but the... let me just say this, Kaylee. If you're going to classify the Ardennes as a vibe, I'm nervous about having you on the podcast because I think you're going to poo-poo the vibe of the, of the Ardennes races because I know that you just tend not to love them. What? No, because they're that, not good. That makes me nervous. Oh, they're the best. It, it makes me, I'm worried to have you on here. Um, I, okay, they're not bad. They are, they are stuck in the Roubaix hangover is the problem. And if, if they flip the season around and you built through the Ardennes and then finished with Flanders and Roubaix, I think that would be really cool because those are the two best races in the calendar. And it just feels a bit like you we peak and then everyone's like momentarily tired of bike racing and then you like come back up for the Giro maybe. And you get this weird sort of thing and no one can see what my hands are doing right now on a podcast, <laughs> but that's fine. I was making a dip. With my with my hand there, uh, no, like individually they're amazing races. I mean, it was it Amstel twenty nineteen, the Vanderpool year, is like one of the greatest finishes in the history of bike racing, right? But they're still like it's it's tough. It's tough when two of the best races of the entire season are always right before it, and and it feels like a bit of a yeah. Uh, you you mentioning the, the, the Vanderpool win, I I was reminded at one point today, and I'll just say this last thing about Amstel before we really quickly just mention what's coming up. I, it is kind of funny that the organizers made this big change to the route. They said, you know what, we're going to put the Kalberg back a little bit so that the race doesn't just end here. and Because it had gotten too predictable. And that was great. It seemed like it was a great decision. And like, but what do you do when the best ride in the world just attacks from like 500 kilometers out every, like, there's nothing you could do about that. So I, I do sort of feel for the organizers of these races when Tadej Pogacar targets your race, I don't know that you can really design it in a way that's going to do anything. Well, and I don't, I don't want to go down to like a, a terrible bad, bad news bears of cycling rabbit hole here. Um, this is a place the other reason I think, oh yeah, <laughs> I should probably save this for a place. You gotta have later content. <laughs> So I'm, I'm gonna keep I'm gonna keep this I'm gonna keep this take very short, and I will expand upon it uh, and placeholders placeholders later this week. Which is when I was growing up and watching bike racing, these races were the ones that were most obviously won by guys that were doped out of their minds, and so that kind of ruined it for me, <laughs> basically. Uh, which you know, looking back, they were mo- most races were won by yes. riders that were doped out of their minds. Um, but it was just a little. It felt a little more obvious with with these ones because it was like it, they just look like watt competitions more often than not. It was like who could go up the final climb the fastest, so who got the best blood bag the night before, basically. And that that is not like I think that kind of ruined the races for me, honestly. Like sort of two thousand two thousand five kind of era, uh, and I've never recovered from it. But that's really a me problem, not an Ardennes problem. So yeah. I don't know. I still wish that I wish that they flipped them. That's that's my big thing. Is like I wish it just built, 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 because these feel like a build to me versus a, a a peak. Okay, so in terms of finishes that tend to happen one way every year, <laughs> that is probably I'm going to say right now uh, what's going to happen at Flesh Flesh Willow on Wednesday. But if you really really like climbing for I don't know a few minutes and a, and a <laughs> hardcore competition of who can climb good. <laughs> Yeah, Go watch see, that race. See, yep. Yeah. 
you can't right. disagree with me and then describe Liege, the race. I feel, I feel very differently about Liege. Defense. I feel very differently Ruth, about Liege. Ruth, defend it, the bike race. Defend it. Well, I love it because I feel like Flanders and Roubaix, there's so much that can go on that's crashes and all of this. And we talk about rider safety and then we go throw them out on these courses with slippery couples and somebody's like 50% of the peloton's going to crash and break something. And I'm sorry, the Ardennes are just hard because the courses are hard and it's, yeah, a bit more of a fitness rather than luck. There's way more luck that people love. And it's the same with Americans that like to watch hockey. They're like, we're here for the fight. And I'm like, okay, that's why people love some of the, you know, Flanders and Roubaix. And I personally hated that. I really didn't like it. I would race Flanders and it would be cool, but I would also just like have so much anxiety around crashing and not want to be crashed out. And of course, crashes happen at the Ardennes classes, classics. We saw that already today. I'm not saying they don't, but it feels like there's less of a purposeful variability to crashing supposed to happen or flats supposed to happen in Roubaix and Flanders versus the climbing races are hard and people win because the climbs were just like super hard. And that's kind of why I like them. I really like that point about Roubaix in particular. I, I love Flanders. I I like watching Roubaix, but I, I don't think it will ever be my favorite race because of that extreme element of randomness caused by the crashes and the flats and everything that happens. And we saw it this year in the men's race where it just kind of deflated was the word you used. And I, I think you weren't being intentionally punny, and I loved that, uh, Kaylee. <laughs> yeah, it, it really deflated because of that. And I, I do like that about these races. Uh, I, I certainly like it more about Liège. I think Liège just can be a much better race than, than Flesh will own these days. But uh, you have raced up the Muir de Huy, which is the final climb of La Flesh Wallonne. You finished as highly as, what, seventh? Yeah. What's your best finish at, at uh, Flesh, Ruth? Don't remember if it was seventh or 11th, but it was last year's. But that's not the cool part. The cool part was in the post race interview of Anna Vanderbregen that I was a problem, she said. And then Ruth Window was a problem. So that's more <laughs> well, impressive like than that. my finish so position, rad. by the way. Because <laughs> I was still off the front solo at the bottom of the. Of the climb. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna. Con- we're confirm. I'm confirming with the results here. You were seventh that year that Vanderbilt okay. won in 2021. Uh, can you compare as somebody who's raced? I've I've never done the uh, Muir. Uh, can you compare that to other climbs on the on the world tour, like climbing up the Muir in the at the finale of of Flesh? Like what? How does that compare to other climbs? It doesn't. It just it's, it doesn't. It's pretty steep consistently for a long time, and the number of people on the side of the road just make it so special. Um, no other climb for a women's race has that many people just like lined on either side. It's really cool. And you can hear them because you're going so slow, (laughs) like going so hard, but so slow. That's actually another really good point about these races though. They've done a nice job of of having women's races for years. The the Ardennes races have where, you know, Milan San Remo, like, oh, reports Milan San Remo may have a women's race. That, that hasn't been a problem for for the Ardennes races, which is great. Flesh Alone is a great race to show to people who don't currently watch or understand bike racing because there's, you know, stuff happens and then there's a sprint up a hill at the end and the sprint up the hill is cool because the hill is terrifying looking and they kind of, I think a lot of people see that and maybe kind of get it. Uh, you know, you don't have to sit there and watch for an hour like a tour climb. It's a minute or two and interesting for normal people. It does go by pretty quick. I think the difference in perspective between Ruth and myself is uh, is she is Maximus and Gladiator. Are you not entertained? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just like some fan drunk on the side, just hanging out, hoping for you know someone's head to get cut off. Like that's basically that's that's what, kind of what we're going for. Uh, and I think that's why we view we view the sport slightly different, differently <laughs> because one of us is inside it and one of us is very much in the stands. Uh, so I, you know, I'll I'll 
I'll acquiesce to to the Ardennes being super fun to race. Uh, I will just not acquiesce to me wanting to watch. Them. Well, okay. So Flesh is on Wednesday. <laughs> we'll get to see the women's race at Flesh. I think it's going to be SC Works versus the World yet again. But who knows? You know, Annemiek van Vleuten is a pretty darn good climber. Maybe she'll be up there, etc. And then on the men's side, I. I it would be really great for, for the excitement of the race if anybody could challenge Pogatra, but who knows about that. Uh, Liege, I do think it's a little bit more interesting, Liege, than, than Flesh Wallone, because Liege has uh, numerous climbs that people actually might go on. They've done a nice job redesigning that course when things got a little stale and it became the everybody plays the Alejandro Valverde waiting till the final sprint kind of role. Uh, and, and Liege isn't really that way or hasn't really been that way much recently. Uh, you, get, you get way more attacks at Liege. You get way more people trying to go farther out. There are you know, there's not 30 options. There's two or three options that you might go on with those tough climbs uh, in Liège. And just a side note, the, the the history of that area is such that uh, you could probably write a couple of really interesting paragraphs about it. And that's going to happen this week in my race preview. If you're watching the race, you're going to see a lot of very industrialized looking houses and it might bum you out but there's a lot of really interesting things about this place so i'm trying to get people hyped which is why against my better judgment we have kaylee on here and i'm just really trying to really trying to make sure people at least tune in just to see the finale at least um it's a vibe sure but it's not the worst vibe you know don't listen to me yeah yeah there we go don't listen to kaylee don't listen to me never ever yeah I stayed in an uh, hourly hotel accidentally one time in Liège. That was fun. Mm, uh, wow. Yeah, Andrew Hood and I started the Tour de France whenever the tour started in Liège. Yeah, if you were following Vela News on Snapchat in like 20, what, 2017, <laughs> 2016, you would have seen the uh, the uh, disco ball that was slowly spinning over my heart-shaped bed. Nice. Wow. <laughs> if that didn't make you fall in love with the race, I don't know what will. Were you, were you sharing a room or... No, he had hotel? the lace room. I had the disco ball room. Thankfully, Ooh. yeah. This is this this is the places that cycling journalism takes you. And on that note, <laughs> let's close it out. Let's. Well, I I, I want to keep it pretty serious. And as soon as we get into that territory, I feel like it's yeah. we're not being pretty serious anymore. You know, it's, uh, it's pretty yeah. unserious. I do apologize. We have both Flesh Malone and Liege to look forward to. Uh, I hope you watch. I hope you enjoy them. I hope they are entertaining, and I hope Kaylee's proven wrong. Nonetheless, Kaylee, thanks for joining us. Ruth, thanks for joining us. Cosmo, as always, great to chat. And we will be back to be pretty serious after Liege in a week. Thanks, and see you then. Bye. Bye.